0: For more information, visit us at fbcdumastx.com. That's fbcdumastx.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Now open your Bible as we explore God's Word together.
1: Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and for this time. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for an opportunity to gather around your Word, to remember what you have done in the past but also what you are doing now and what you will do in the future. Pray that you bless our time together, that you forgive us of our sins. In Christ's holy and precious name we pray, amen. Amen. So this week in your book, if you had it, it was chapter 5, which is kind of a short chapter. In fact, Matt has been doing about two chapters. So we're only doing one chapter tonight, so it's going to be about half as long. So you'll be out of here a little early tonight. And so we are on Jesus' final week. And we are talking about Maundy Thursday, Maundy Thursday and the Last Supper. And so Maundy Thursday, not Mon- Monday Thursday or Monday Thursday, but Maundy Thursday in the Latin is where we get this from, from mandantum novum, Mandatum novum, which literally means mandate new, novum. And so that is a new mandate or a new commandment that Christ gives his disciples. And we see that in John 13, 34, saying, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. So this is Monday Thursday, if you would. The new commandment is where we get that from. And so this is about the Last Supper, the Passover meal that they celebrate together And they have a preparation of the Passover meal that is very unique, that sets this story apart just right from the beginning. In Matthew 26, 17, we read, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciple asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. So, this is kind of an interesting way to get us started because Jesus tells them to look for the man carrying a jar of water. So, this is strange because in this time, carrying water or fetching water was woman's work. So, it would be unheard of really to see men carrying jars of water. And they're going to be pretty big jars for the most part. So, that's what would have been expected. And of course, when people come to Passover, there's going to be thousands of people that come uh, for the Passover. So it would be hard to find a specific person, but God, in His sovereignty and His providence, ordained that for whatever reason, this servant, this male, is the one carrying the water. So he would actually be a little easier to spot within the crowd. And so He tells them to follow that servant who is carrying the jar of water as they prepare for the Passover meal. And so they have the. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is mentioned, but also the Passover itself. And really, that would just be one continual feast throughout the night. So there's two technical feasts there, but all of it is kind of considered one continuation of the Passover meal itself. And so, they begin the Passover meal. And so we see four main scenes throughout this Passover event, and we'll cover about... Four or five chapters tonight. So we'll take a bird's eye view of this. So, one of the first and major scenes that we see is the washing of the disciples' feet, the Passover meal is the next scene, predicting Peter's denial, and predicting Judas's betrayal. Those are going to be our four main scenes that we see because all of this is right before Jesus is arrested and crucified. However, we notice that throughout all of this, Jesus' focus here in John 13 through 17 is beyond that point. His focus beyond that point because in John 13, 1, it says, It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them. To the end. Notice that Jesus' mindset is he is going to the Father. He knows that his time has come. He knows he has to be crucified, but he doesn't even focus on that. He focuses past that. There's no doubt in Jesus' mind that God is going to have the victory in all of this. He knows what's coming. He knows what Satan's going to do. But he is looking beyond that to go to the Father, even all the way up to the ascension is what's in mind here. And, of course, this is bolstered by what he's already told the disciples the new command is. Having loved his own who were in the world, and he what? He loved them to the end. So the new mandate is to love each other like Christ has loved us. And, of course, that is sacrificial love, and for Christ, all the way unto death. So our first scene is when Jesus washes washes the disciples' feet and John 13:4 through 11. You'll probably want to go ahead and turn there. John 13:4 through 11. We're going to spend some time on the feet washing. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with towel, the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, "Lord, are you going to wash my feet?" And you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone is clean. Of course, we have the obvious physical things that happen of removing the dirt and washing the feet and things of that nature. But Jesus gives us an indication that there is more to be understood here, that they're not grasping now, that we need further revelation later on of what's going on. And he says, you do not realize now what I'm doing. They would have obviously got the obvious things. But later you will understand there in verse 7. So that gives us an indication that there is a special type of significance to the feet washing, of why that particular scene at all with the disciples? Why is Jesus washing their feet? And at base level, this significance is a picture of the incarnation. It is a picture of the incarnation of Christ. So let's break this down just a little bit, and then we'll get into the more practical things of it as well. So notice the, the three events that happened in the feet washing. Jesus takes off his robe. He ties it around him. He goes down as a servant to wash their feet. When he is done serving, he comes back up and puts his robe back on. And so we see this as a small picture of the incarnation in Philippians 2, 5, which will not be on the screen, but I'll read it to you. But go ahead and turn there if you would. Philippians 2, 5 through 7 says... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, Christ Jesus, who through he was in the, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of man. The shedding of the cloak. God the Son, before the incarnation, did not have a body. All three persons of the Godhead, did not have bodies. They were all spirit. But Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, he is not eternal. At some point, the Son of God condescends and takes on human flesh. He strips himself of his rights as God or his privileges of God. It's hard, it's hard language to not fall in a ditch on either side. But privileges is probably a good way to look at it. And so when he comes down... He takes the form of a servant. He takes off his privileges. But when he comes the first time, condescends, he comes for a specific purpose. He comes to serve. And so in the feet washing, we see that. Jesus comes, and he takes the form of a servant to wash the feet. Now, if you were to invite somebody in your house at this time, it would be customary for your servant to go wash your guest's feet. However, if you did not have a servant in the house, no way, no how would the master of the house ever stoop down to wash the guests' feet. The guests would just do it themselves just to get the, the dirt off and go about their business. So this is a very special scene because Jesus, he comes, or the Son comes, incarnated in Christ, but he comes for a purpose, and Jesus shows them that. He, stoop, he stoops down to the disciples, and he washes their feet. This is, this is servant work, the lowliest work that can be happening right now. And of course, we see that in Philippians 2 8. He says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so ultimately, his service for the first time that Jesus comes is to be a servant, to not be served. And that service, we are told in Philippians 2 8, is that service is to die for his people, to be crucified on the cross. But what's important, again, Jesus has in mind he's going to the Father. This is all true, but he's got the victory in mind already. Notice that Jesus, when he is done serving, he's done washing his feet, he puts the robe back on. He puts the robe on, as in the work is finished. He ascends, if you would, back to his rightful place. And of course, in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, we see, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. So when the servant work is done, he takes his rightful place as master. Again, he reigns on high at the right hand of God. And so that is what he came to do. He condescends. He removes his godly station, and the removal is by addition, adding on a human nature, distinct but not separate, the divine nature, the human nature, no mixture, distinct but not separate. He comes to serve all the way through the cross, but even beyond that, he puts the cloak back on and ascends, accomplished in victory. And so in this model, we see that Christ is the pinnacle character of servant leadership. So in Matthew 20, 28, he says, Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he is serving the disciples, servant role of washing their feet. And so what does this mean? He is coming to serve by giving his life as a ransom, and the ransom is for many And so the picture here, Peter responds to the feet washing, and he says, don't wash my feet. You can't do that. And Jesus says, I will have no part of you unless I wash your feet. And then he says, well, if you're going to wash my feet, you might as well wash my hands, wash my head. If it's such a good thing that you insist, I want more of a good thing. And Christ makes a really important distinction here. He says, no, I'm not going to wash your hands and your head. I'm only going to wash your feet because you have already bathed. And so the picture here is that in a sinful world, he is already clean. He makes that point. In a sinful world, the world's dirt gets on us, gets on our feet as we travel through this place of woe. And Jesus' response is when you have this dirt on you, when you fall into sin, you don't need another conversion. You don't need a full-on bath. That's baptism. But we need what? A cleansing, a feet washing, the removal of sin when the dirt of the world gets on us. And that's a very important distinction. So this is why the pastors are adamant that if somebody is rededicating their life to Christ, we never say, let's go get re-baptized. There's no such thing as re-baptized. You either went swimming or you were baptized. And so there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And so when you are repenting and turning and you realize that you have this dirt on your feet from being in this world, the response is not to get re-baptized. The response is to be cleansed, to have your feet washed. And so what is this cleansing in practical matters? In 1 John 1, 9, it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to what cleanse us. From all unrighteousness righteousness. So repentance, a turning away again from your sin, that is the model. Not to be resaved because you didn't lose it in the first place, but you may need to repent and be cleansed of your sin. So that is the first major scene that we see here for Maundy Thursday is Jesus washing the disciples' feet. But notice when Jesus ended that, he said, you're clean, Peter, but not every one of you is clean. And obviously this is referring to Judas Iscariot identifying the traitor. But he identifies him in a very peculiar way. In the other gospel accounts, we see a more generic uh, overview of that conversation where he says, who, who's going to betray me? And he says, somebody who has dipped his bread here at the table with me is going to betray me. And, of course, that's not very enlightening because all of them would have dipped the bread with Jesus and eaten with Him and have been communing with Him. But in John 13, 21, we see a little bit more of a detailed conversation as well. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in His spirit and testified, "'Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray Me.' The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom He spoke. One of His disciples, whom Jesus loved." was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after... He had taken the morsel. Satan entered into him, Judas. Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to them. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag. Jesus was telling him, but what we need, uh, buy what we need for the feast, or you should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus reveals who the traitor is in a very special way. And when he does, we see that Satan entered into Judas. Now that's very interesting. The author of the book that you're reading notes that we should notice that Satan is involved at least twice in the scenes that we're looking at today. That Satan does not leave this major event that he thinks is going to be the death blow of God up to lesser demons, or even his highest demons. No, it's Satan himself who comes and enters into Judas to make sure that these tasks are being carried out. But the nature of his treachery is found in the way that Jesus reveals how or who this traitor is. And it's actually a prophecy that is fulfilled in Psalm 41, 8 through 10. They say, "...a deadly thing is poured out on him. He will not rise again from where he lies." Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. So notice that this is David writing this. And David is a Christ figure. Moses is a Christ figure. All of those are shadows pointing to the true Christ that we find in Jesus of Nazareth. And so that is true then, the Christ figure, the shadow had a similar situation. Of course, the the rumor is, is a deadly thing is poured out on him, David, but also what? Christ. Poured out on him. And the thought is here, he will not rise from where he lies. But he does. That's the same thing. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate bread with me, who has dipped the bread, has lifted his heel against me. Judas is the one who has lifted his heel against, the Christ, against Christ. But, of course, again, the end of the story is beyond the crucifixion, beyond the resurrection, all the way to the ascension, back to the Father. But you, O Lord, be gracious to me and raise me up that I may repay them. And, of course, that actually happens. Of course, this happens with David in the shadow, but it is more true with Christ who is crucified and raised again. And so the second major scene is the identification of the traitor, and follow, which follows closely with the Last Supper, the actual meal itself. The Passover meal has several elements. The lamb, how many people here have actually had a Passover meal, like the Seder meal? One, two, a few people. Yeah, so there are several different elements, a lot of people do it in their homes and things of that nature. And so the elements there are the lamb, which represents the blood smeared over the doorposts. All of this is pointing back to Exodus, where God saved his people from Egypt. They have unleavened bread, just like they did in Exodus, to show that you don't have time uh, to put the leaven in the bread. The swiftness of redemption is coming now, so they have unleavened bread. The bowl of fruit is the clay used to make bricks the salt that they have is for the tears of their slavery and it represents also what God did at the Red Sea the miracle there we also see bitter herbs which is represents the bitterness of their bondage and they have four cups of wine real wine not grape juice four cups of wine and that commemorating the four promises of God in Exodus and of course Exodus 6 6 through 7 is what we looked at just a couple of week, weeks ago so the four promises are I'm going to set you free by the judgments, the outstretched arm, the mighty acts of judgment I'm going to make you my people and you're, I am going to be your God. The four promises of uh, the four promises of God and the cups of wine. and in Luke's account, we actually see mention of at least two cups of wine, so there is kind of a, a staging there, if you would. So that is pointing to a reality. The Seder meal, the, the Passover meal is pointing to the reality of what happened in Exodus. But Jesus initiates a new covenant with bread and wine, and he presents himself as the fulfillment of the Passover meal. And he does this, especially in the Gospel of John. All the I am statements, the seven I am statements, are always a- associated with what? A feast. So a feast, and John makes it very clear that this festival, this feast, this thing that is happening, I am, is the real thing. That that is pointing towards the real fulfillment. Yes, we have the the holy manna that happened in the Old Testament, but Christ says, I am the bread of life. It's a fulfillment of this. And of course, in the New Covenant, when we take this in uh, communion, We say we are eating the body, we are eating the body of Christ, drinking the blood of Christ. He is the Passover meal for us. So that's why we don't typically have an annual Seder meal here for Maundy Thursday or something of that nature. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the Passover meal itself. He says that this is my body, this is my blood, broken for you, poured out for you or shed for you. And this is the new covenant. And we partake in that, what Christ has accomplished. And so he himself is the Passover meal for us. He is the Last Supper. And so finally, as we end the meal, Jesus turns and he gives three sets of bad news in our final scene. He gives three sets of bad news. The first one that we see is found in Luke 22. And the disciples are arguing over... After the new covenant, who's going to be the greatest in this kingdom that Jesus is ushering in? And they're saying, oh, I'm going to sit at your right hand. I'm going to do this. And Jesus has to correct this mindset. How soon after he just washed their feet to show that I'm the greatest here. I'm washing your feet. I'm the servant. And then all of a sudden, it's not too much longer. And they're already bickering over who is the greatest. In Luke 22, 24, we read, A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus has to remind them that who's greater, somebody who reclines at the table or somebody who's serving? Obviously, people sitting at the table. And he demonstrates, but I, everybody knows that Jesus is the real MC here. He is the greatest in the room, no doubt. There's no doubt in their mind. because he says, you have been along with me for all these trials. You've seen all the stuff that's happened. Yet I, the greatest in this room, am stooping down to servant role, to wash your feet. And so he says, you were to do the same. It is the pinnacle example of servant leadership. So we had the argument over who is the greatest, but then he also warns them that they are going to abandon him after all of this happens. In Mark 14, 27, we read, And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall, I will not and of course, this is a fulfillment of prophecy that's already happened. Jesus has already revealed, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And so the shepherd will be struck. And we see that this comes true, obviously, in Christ. In Zechariah thirteen seven, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, next to me declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And I will turn my hand against the little ones. And you can continue reading the verse 9 for the full prophecy. So this is fulfilled in Christ. The shepherd is struck on the cross by God's providence. Notice that. Obviously, it's more than, oh, this didn't take God by surprise. He knew what was going to happen. It's more than that. It is ordained according to the scriptures, according to the will of God. He is moving all things for this to happen to have the, the shepherd struck and the sheep scattered. And, of course, Peter says, All of them may scatter and abandon you, but I will not. So we see the, the welling of Peter's pride in front of everyone here in Mark 14, saying, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. So everybody's saying, this isn't going to happen. Funny how the Master, the Son of God, who they all recognize as the great I am, they're sitting here questioning him at this point. You don't know what you're talking about. We'll never leave you. And Jesus says, not only is that true, Peter, who is so confident, you're going to deny me three times before this even happens and before the rooster crows twice. And we see an expansion or an expanded detail of that in Luke 22, saying that Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, for that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So in expanded detail, he says that Satan, again, here's the second mention of Satan. Satan demanded to have Peter. Satan is involved. He didn't entrust this sifting wheat from chaff or the attempt to, with Peter, to any other demon, to any other uh, being that is under his command. He does it himself. And Christ says that Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. And sift, the verb here is very violent imagery. And sift, this verb here, is only found in this spot in the entire Bible. This is the only occurrence in all the biblical corpus is sift. And it's very violent, this, this <laughs> shredding away, the removing of wheat and chaff. And it's going to be painful. And of course, we see that in Peter, this sifting comes in the form of him denying Christ three times. But... What's the response to Satan's attack? Christ prays for Peter. And notice that Peter says, or Christ says, this is going to happen, but when you have turned again, you're going to turn away. You're going to scatter. The Scriptures have already spoken. That's going to happen, but you're also going to turn back. Why? Because Christ has prayed for him. He is interceding on his behalf, and therefore he will not be lost. Not because Peter is so great, but because he has a great high priest interceding for him, turning him back. And he tells Peter that when you do turn again, you need to strengthen your brothers. So the question is, is how do you strengthen anybody? What do you do? You feed them. You feed somebody to get stronger. You need the calories, the proteins, all of that, to in order to get stronger at all. But of course, man does not live by bread alone, but by the very word of God. And so, Peter, recon- or Jesus reconciles Peter to himself after all of this. Because Peter denies him three times, but then he comes to Peter and says, Do you love me? Remember the greatest command? Maundy Thursday, the new commandment, do you love me? He says, Of course I love you. Feed my sheep. And he does it three times. Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. All as a picture of reconciliation, a turning again unto Christ for the three denials of Peter. So we have the great denial of Peter, the abandonment of the scattered sheep, and the argument over who is the greatest as our final scene here. And so after he gives the bad news of the three topics here, Jesus gives a farewell discourse that's very famous. It's a, it's a prayer, and it's a, quite a long section. So we'll just kind of take an overview, but he gives him five promises Saying that he is going to leave them. He just gave them bad news and says, I'm leaving. I'm going back to the Father. Of course, this is distressing news for them. But he gives them five reasons for why this is important. Because he's going there to prepare a place for them. He is going to prepare them a place. He would also show them the way to the Father. Remember where we started, that Jesus is going back to the Father. But he's going back to the Father in a certain way. He is going to be crucified resurrected, and ascended to God. And so he is showing them the way. And of course, we see this in the rest of Scripture, that you take up your cross daily, die to yourselves, and someday you will die, literally. But also, like Christ, if you are in Christ who has shown you the way, you will also be resurrected with him and then to the Father. However that may happen there in the end. He also says that his departure would provide Great intimacy of relationship, the indwelling of Christ. This is where we get that language of Christ in our hearts and and things of that nature. This intimate relationship that helps them, enable them for the fourth promise, to perform great works in verses 12 through 14. And in order to help accomplish all of this, of course, when Jesus leaves, he sends them a divine helper, which is, of course, we know, the Holy Spirit. And in fact, in this upper room discourse in chapters 14 through 16, it's the most detailed teaching of the Holy Spirit that we have in all of Scripture. In fact, if we didn't have just these few chapters, we would know very little of the Holy Spirit at all. And the main takeaway is that the Holy Spirit is described as our advocate and our counselor. And so he gives them this distressing news. He tells them, they argue about the greatness, you need to be a servant, you're going to abandon me, you're going to deny me, and I'm leaving. And this is why, in his immediate response to this distressing stuff to the disciples, is what? Jesus goes and prays. He prays in chapter 17, and this is important because you can learn a lot about somebody when you hear them pray, of what's on their heart, what's on their mind, and this is a beautiful insight to what is on the mind of Christ after all of this right before his crucifixion something that is weighing on him greatly obviously and this is what he prays for he prays for the disciples he intercedes for his sheep but also what is paramount to him is for the glory of God for all things are from him and to him and through him to him be the glory that not my will but your will be done and so he prays for the disciples. And so that leaves us just with a few things. As we look at all these overviews of each of the scenes, just a few concluding thoughts that we have. One of the constant themes that we see throughout all of, all of this chapter in the book, but also this entire scene for Maundy Thursday, is we see the sovereignty of God displayed. Again, this is not, God's not surprised by this. No, God is at work in this. We mean things for good, but God means it, or evil, God means it for good. The same it, God is in it and through it and moving it so that it actually happens because of his plan, his purpose is greater. And, of course, we see just time and time again throughout all of these, like the preparation, he ordains for that man, which would be unusual, to carry the water. He predicts Peter's denial. He shows his omniscience touching the divine nature and Judas's portrayal as well. So God is sovereign through every single step of the way without exception. And of course, the last supper here is a reminder for God's people of what Christ's sacrifice is, right? He is a ransom for many. He's the good shepherd, shepherd that lays his life down for the sheep, that this is for you. This is a reminder for us that that actually happened In the past, that it happened at the cross, and we now partake in the fulfillment of the Passover meal, Christ, through the Lord's Supper. And so we are reminded of what Christ did. He is our Passover, and what He did accomplished that. But also, the Passover, the the Last Supper, Monday, Thursday, it is a reminder that we are to also look forward to Christ's second coming. Because there's a lot of imagery here of his first coming as servant. But the second coming is going to be as judge. He will be glorified and he is coming back again as judge instead of servant. In 1 Corinthians 11:26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time that we remember, those things actually took place in the past, but also... We're proclaiming to everyone that we are expecting Christ to come again. And we are looking forward to that, to the initiation or the inauguration of the actual marriage feast, the fulfillment of that, to recline at table with Christ. And so the author has a great quote on page 78 that closes all of this, saying, this brings a celebratory note to the Lord's Supper. Contemplating Christ's return, believers celebrate the truth that Jesus is coming again. And on that day, they will eat with him at the Messianic banquet. So, in a couple weeks, we will actually be partaking in the Lord's Supper for Palm Sunday, the marching in of the Lamb that is to be sacrificed. And so, these are important images to have in our mind that this is a a very special time of year. The whole Holy Week is going to be very special. But also, when we partake in the Lord's Supper on Palm Sunday and Maundy Thursday down here, so remember that, that this is pointing back, but pointing forward as well of what Christ has done. He is our Passover meal. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for what you have done through Christ on the cross, what you have spared us, and what you have given us in return. His robes for mine. He took our judgment, our sin, our punishment, and we received his righteous works and he brings us into communion with you to recline at table to eat with you to be called friends and family children of God I pray that you help us to not take that lightly that we will continue to draw closer to you closer to each other and through your word pray that you forgive us of our sins prepare our hearts now before we take communion in the future in Christ's name we pray amen
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about what it means to follow Jesus as Lord, you can email us at fbcdumas at hotmail.com. It's fbcdumas at hotmail.com. You can also reach us by phone at 806-935-5604. We'll see you next time.